How would you uh, describe a mature Christian? I mean, what should be the most obvious characteristic of one who walks daily with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Well, some might say, well, you know, the heart of the Christian message is the Bible, and so a spiritually mature Christian is one who knows the Bible well, he studies it diligently, he can explain the core doctrines of the faith. Uh, In fact, he can cite many passages from memory. And since we can't know God apart from how he has revealed himself in his word, um, it seems like Bible knowledge is the essential mark of maturity. Someone else might say, well, yeah, but Bible knowledge is no good unless you really believe what you read. Uh, There are Bible scholars who are unbelievers. Uh, They know the Bible, but they don't know God. And so uh, great faith in God and the promises of his word is the mark of maturity. Well, someone might come back and say, yeah, but faith without works is dead faith. And James says that. And so A spiritually mature person is one who shows his faith in God's word by his good deeds. Uh, Show me a person with good deeds, and there I'll show you a spiritually mature person. And another person may say, well, yeah, but a person like that can just be a fair-weather Christian. He's going to fall away when a time of persecution comes. And so the real test of whether your faith in God's word is true, is how do you endure and persevere in persecution, uh, even to the point of martyrdom? That's a spiritually mature person. Now, which one of them is right? Well, as we've just read, according to the Apostle Paul, none of them. (laughs) None of them. You can have all of those things, and yet they all miss the central mark of the Christian who is mature. Paul says you can add up together great knowledge of the Bible, even the ability to expound the Bible eloquently and powerfully. You can have faith that moves mountains. You can have good deeds. You can have perseverance even to the point of offering yourself to martyrdom. But if you lack this other quality, your maturity is zero. And that quality, of course, is Christian love. And The chapter we just read, I wanted to read the whole chapter because undoubtedly it's one of the most profound, eloquent statements on uh, Christian love in all of the Bible and probably in all literature. But the, the Corinthian church had gotten off track. They were really emphasizing spiritual gifts, and we all know God gives spiritual gifts. They are used to the building up of the body of Christ. They are essential. But the problem was they were using their gifts apart from love. And Paul is making the point that if we do that, then it's going to amount to nothing if we don't make love the priority. And so to summarize the chapter in verses 1 through 3, Paul shows the preeminence of love, that love is greater than all spiritual gifts uh, because without love, all those gifts are empty. He says love is greater than tongues. Love is greater than prophecy. It's greater than knowledge, faith, good deeds, and even martyrdom. 
You can add in all of those things, but if you do them without love, he says, uh, you're a spiritual zero. And then in verses 4 through 7, he shows the practice of love, that love is greater than all spiritual gifts because of its selfless characteristics. And as I explained uh, last week, and I've said it many, many times, I hope you have it about memorized, but biblical love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And, of course, Jesus Christ, in his sacrificial death on the cross, is the epitome and the embodiment of that kind of love. Uh, There is no greater love that has ever been shown than what Christ did on the cross. And so in Ephesians 5.2, Paul says that we're to walk in love, and then he holds up the standard, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. And then in verses 8 through 13, Paul shows the permanence of love, that it's greater than all spiritual gifts because it outlasts them. Now, we're going to focus this morning mainly on verses 4 through 7, where Paul describes how love acts. And in English, most of these descriptions are predicate adjectives, if you go back to your English grammar class. But in Greek, they're verbs. And they're they're terms of action, and the point is that love is not talk, love is action. It is seen in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And while all Christians are to love others, or even to love our enemies, uh, and the text here is not a marriage text, it's written to a church that's divided and squabbling and vying for preeminence and so on, uh, we have been looking at Paul's commandment in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so, husbands, the, the burden is on us as the example setters, the ones who form the climate in our home to be a climate of love. And a professing Christian family where the husband is not practicing love uh, is, is not doing the most important thing that a Christian family should be known for. And so we've got to focus, guys, especially us, but all of us, in this church, in our homes, but especially husbands and fathers to be known by our love that we practice what we're going to look at. And so my main focus in this message is that practicing selfless love is the priority for every Christian husband. Now, let me be quick to say we're all prone to do this with a passage like this, to say, well, you know, I'm sure glad you're preaching on this because my wife needs this message and my kids need this message. Or wives will say, man, thank goodness you're preaching on this. My husband needs to hear this. And she nudges him throughout the message, listen up. Uh, I'm going to encourage all of us to do this this morning and say, Lord, 
I need this. I need to be a more loving person. Whether you're married or single, uh, whatever your state in life is, if you know Christ, you need to be growing in Christ-like love. And if you don't know Christ, that's your main need. You need to know Christ so that you can grow in Christ-like love. Now, Paul here enumerates 15 characteristics of love, and a couple of them can be combined. And so we're going to look at 13 characteristics that show how love acts or what love looks like in everyday life. So let's work through the list. And the first one is that selfless love is patient. Ah, why did he put that first? You know, that always nails me right out of the, out of the starting gate. Love is patient. Uh, I often fail to be patient with my wife when my kids were in the home. Boy, they try your patience. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, patience is an interesting quality because when I don't need it, I practice it beautifully. <laughs> I can be as patient as all get out when I don't need to be patient. But then when I need to be patient, I don't even want to be patient. You know, I want my way and I'm frustrated and ah, and. That's when I need this difficult quality. And the Greek word comes from a compound word, meaning long-tempered. And so if you're patient, you're slow to anger. Uh, It means you endure personal wrongs without retaliating. It means that you graciously bear with others' imperfections, their faults, uh, their differences, A patient man, speaking to husbands, uh, gives others time to change, room to grow, realizing we're all in process. And uh, you just have to ask yourself, especially as as a husband, does that describe me? I hope I'm growing in that, but... The first one, as I said, just nails me because I'm often impatient. Uh, There's a man that lived in the late 1500s named Dr. Thomas Cooper. And uh, he is up on the mountaintop of patience. Uh, Dr. Cooper was editing a dictionary that had the addition of uh, 33,000 words. This is, of course, pre-computer days. And uh, he had his notes. And he had been collecting materials for eight years. One day when he was gone, his wife went into his study and burned his notes because she said she was worried he was going to kill himself with study. So eight years of work, a pile of ashes. Dr. Cooper came home, saw the destruction, asked who did this, and his wife very boldly said she had done it. He heaved a deep sigh, and he said, Oh, Dinah, Dinah. Thou hast given a world of trouble. (laughs) And then he went back to collecting his eight years of painstaking work all over again. So next time you think you're on the mountaintop of patience, think about Dr. Cooper and realize, well, I still have some room to grow in this first quality of love. The second one Paul mentions is that love is kind. Selfless love is kind. And Kindness is patience in action. The Greek word has a root meaning of useful. 
so a, a kind person is a person who seeks to be helpful. He looks for needs, looks for opportunities to meet those needs because, again, his focus isn't on himself. It's on others. How can I be of help here in the situation? Uh, what would their need be, even if it's not spoken? Uh, the word was used of mellow wine and so may have the nuance of someone who's gentle, who's able to soothe hurt feelings, someone who can calm down an upset person and just help quietly and in practical ways, uh, someone who's tender and forgiving when he's wronged. I think the test of being kind is when you've done something nice for someone and they're mean or ungrateful in return. Uh, the reason I say that is in the Sermon on the Mount, or this is the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, Jesus instructed us to love our enemies, and he pointed to God as our example. And in Luke 6.35, he said of God, For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Even to ungrateful And evil people, God is a kind God. And Paul says that God's kindness should bring us to repentance. Uh, Peter says that his kindness should motivate us to put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and to long for the pure milk of the word so that we may grow by it in respect to salvation. So God's kindness is a motivating kind of characteristic and when someone has been kind to you it should motivate you to to want to be kind back but also to be kind to others and so again just applying this to husbands would would your wife and kids say he is a kind man he's a man who doesn't think of himself he looks for needs tries to meet him he's sensitive to feelings Uh, that's how We should do because love isn't gruff. And I find a lot of guys are just gruff. I don't know. Maybe they think it's manly to be kind of, you know, bark orders, that kind of thing. Uh, Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Thirdly, love is not jealous. The word means eagerly desire. And it's used both positively and negatively in the Bible. In a positive sense, our God is a jealous God. And he doesn't tolerate any idolatry, any rivalry. He is first by virtue of the fact he is the eternal creator. He is God. Uh, God in the Bible commends those who are jealous for his uh, honor And in that sense, applied to husbands, I think a husband should be jealous to preserve the sanctity of his marriage, both guarding himself from any temptation and guarding his wife so that they have that exclusive fidelity. In the negative sense, though, jealousy refers to being greedy or selfish or possessive. And a selfishly jealous husband just wants his wife totally to himself. He uh, wants her to meet his needs. He denies her any freedom to go and spend time with her family or or female friends or 
that sort of thing, even resents sometimes the time she spends with the children. And a jealous husband doesn't trust his wife when she's out of his sight. He's very possessive, that kind of thing. And jealousy in the Bible is a deed of the flesh, and it's often associated with anger and with quarrels. That's not what love is like. A fourth quality, selfless love, does not brag and is not arrogant. And I'm combining those two here. Uh, They're related. They both stem from selfishness. They're the flip side of jealousy, a, a bragging, arrogant husband Uh, Thinks he knows it all. He treats his wife as if she doesn't. She's stupid. Or he puts her down either verbally or, you know, how we can put people down just with a look of disgust. But bragging reveals a heart of pride. And often a bragging husband is competing with his wife for glory or dominance. He wants to rule the roost and he's going to show her he can and he does by putting her down, that kind of thing. Sometimes a bragging, arrogant husband will say, after all I've done for you, you know, and you treat me that way. And he he puts her down, lifts himself up. It's the opposite of love, which builds others up, even by putting myself down in humility. And so, a humble, loving husband knows, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4-7, what do you have? that you weren't given. And if you were given it, why do you boast as if, you know, you got it yourself kind of thing? So even our wives, our children, they're gifts from God. I didn't deserve them. And so I should treat them with that kind of humility that lifts them up. A fifth quality of selfless love, it doesn't act unbecomingly. And some translations, I think maybe a little more Pointedly read, it's not rude. Selfless love is not rude. It has good manners. And it tries to put others at ease in a situation, meaning it's courteous, polite, sensitive to feelings of others, tactful. Um, A loving husband is going to think, how would I feel if I were in my wife's place? And how would I want to be treated if I were? And he treats her accordingly. It's the golden rule. Um, A a husband who's not rude doesn't uh, put his wife down, make sarcastic comments, make fun of her weaknesses or her mistakes or that sort of thing. Uh, He's treating her with honor and with respect because rudeness, again, comes when we think about ourselves at the expense of others. We, we don't care about, wow, how would I feel if I was the brunt of that comment? And it comes to the person's aid. You know, it's interesting. When a couple is courting, a guy will run around the side of the car in a driving rainstorm to open the door for his, his woman he's courting. And five years after they're married, he tends to say, what's the matter? You got a broken arm? You know, you can open your own door. And we, we just get kind of insensitive to one another if we aren't careful. And so love is considerate of others. It's not rude. A sixth quality, Paul says, selfless love does not seek its own. Uh, It is 
not insisting on its own way is the way the ESV translates it. It means it's not demanding its rights. Uh, A selfless husband does not seek his own. Alan Redpath, who was a godly uh, Bible teacher and pastor, he's with the Lord now, but he said this, the secret of every discord in Christian homes, communities, and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory. And as you think about it, selfishness is the root problem of every human heart, and uh, it's the antithesis of love, as I said, which is self-sacrificing. I read a touching story years ago from Elizabeth Elliot. She was once speaking on the subject of uh, sacrificing ourselves in love for others to an audience that included some young children that were sitting in the front row, and she was trying to think, how can I get this across to them so they can apply it? And then later she got a letter from uh, a six-year-old boy who was there, and he said this, I'm learning to lay down my life for my little sister. She has to take a nap in the afternoon, and I don't have to take a nap, but she can't go to sleep unless I come in and lay down beside her. And so I lay down with my little sister. Isn't that sweet? That's how this little guy was learning how to love his sister, even though he didn't have to take a nap. But, you know, if if husbands and wives and children and parents would apply that in our homes, as that little boy did, uh, our homes would be free of conflict, and we would be respecting or, or we would be reflecting, I should say, the spirit of Christ. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served. He could have, but rather to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's how we should be in our relationships. You know, I'm so thankful Jesus didn't insist on his rights. If he had, he wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have died in our place. A seventh quality, selfless love is not provoked. The Phillips paraphrase says it's not touchy. In other words, a loving husband doesn't have a short fuse. He's ready to go off, trigger temper, so the family's always walking on eggshells and afraid, oh, wow, if we do anything, he's going to explode. And a loving husband doesn't use his anger to control his family to punish them, to intimidate them. Uh, That's all unloving behavior. You know, a lot of guys will excuse their anger saying, well, yeah, I have a short fuse, but, you know, I just get it all out and then it's over with. Well, that's how that bomb was in Somalia this week. Just went off quickly. Leaves 200 people dead. And anger is that way. It causes destruction in relationships. And it's, as James says, it doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. And so we've got to judge our anger because with the rare, rare, rare exception of righteous anger, and I I think we too many times say, I was righteously angry. No, I wasn't. I was selfishly angry. With that rare exception, I would say anger and love are polar opposites. You're not loving when you're angry. Uh, An eighth quality here is that selfless love then doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. And 
that's an accounting word. Um, it's used of uh, God not imputing our guilt to us, but instead He imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account in Romans chapter 4. Uh, love doesn't keep a tally of wrongs and then bear a grudge and make the person pay up for every single wrong they've done. It doesn't try to gain the upper hand by reminding someone of uh, past wrongs. In other words, love forgives and uh, bears the, the cost of that. One time I was counseling with a woman. I can't even remember who she was, and I'm sure she doesn't come here, so you don't know her. Um, but she was having marriage problems, and uh, when I asked her what the trouble was in her marriage, she got into her personal belongings, and she handed me eight pages of handwritten notes detailing every time her husband had wronged her. And I kind of read a few of them to get the gist of where we were going, and I handed it back to her, and I said, I have an answer for your marriage problems. And she perked up, and I said, go home and burn this immediately. And she didn't want to hear that because she wanted me to take her side and prove that her husband was wrong and make him pay for every single time he had wronged her. Relationships cannot be healthy when we do that. Love doesn't keep score. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. A ninth quality uh, is that selfless love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. So I'm combining two qualities here. Uh, They're the flip side of each other. Moffat, in his paraphrase, says, Love is never glad when others go wrong. So to rejoice in the truth means that you're glad when you see behavior, excuse me, or attitudes that line up with the truth of God's Word. And it means, on the other side, if your wife sins against you, you don't gloat because you go, chalk one up, she owes me one for that one. I'm going to get her. No, you're not doing that. You grieve when anybody you love sins because sin grieves God. And when a family member repents, you don't rub it in. You rejoice and say, wow, I am so glad to see you growing in Christ. And you rejoice with that. There's this fine balance to love where as a husband, a loving husband, and I'm speaking here to husbands, it works the other way with wives, but you're kind and you overlook many faults of your mate, and yet if it's a sin issue and it's an ongoing sin issue, you know that doesn't glorify God. And so at some point, lovingly, you have to come along in kindness, gentleness, and and confront and correct because sin always destroys. It destroys the person. It, it causes distance in relationships, and you don't want that. And so you have to come alongside and say, you know, I really care about our relationship, but this behavior is causing distance here, and I want to help you be what God wants you to be in it. And you come alongside and give help. Um, the Apostle John in Third John 4 said this, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And that should be our stance. When we hear someone is obeying God, even if it's a little victory, uh, 
don't put them down and say, well, I'm glad you made that little step. Now you got to climb this whole mountain. No, you just say, wow, praise God. That was, that was great to see uh, how you obeyed in that situation and you encourage growth. Um, this isn't in the notes, but let me tell you a story. Many years ago, I, I struggled with complaining, and I still do, you know, not thanking God in every situation. And we were out to dinner, and my brother was complaining about his steak not being done to perfection. And I made a comment about, you know, shouldn't we be thanking God for that? Because God had been convicting me of my own grumbling. And I think it threatened my dad and made him kind of say, well, look who's talking, you know. And he kind of put me down, justifiably, because I tended to be a grumbler rather than encouraging me with my victory of saying, wow, I'm glad to see you've turned a corner in that. And yes, we all should be thankful. Um, and I've seen that I tend to do the same thing in family. You know, you, you peg a person in a place, and then if they try and break out of there, you put them back in their place because it threatens you. And rather than doing that, we need to encourage growth in others, even if it convicts us. And then number 10, selfless love bears all things. And Paul here mentions at the end four things, four times, all things, all things, all things, all things. And I agree with John MacArthur who says he's using hyperbole here or an exaggeration to make a point. Because stop and think about it. There are many sins that love doesn't bear with or believe or hope or endure Things like jealousy, arrogance, rudeness, selfishness, anger, bitterness. Love gently confronts those things, not just bears with them. Um, And so I think Paul, again, is is trying to make a point here um, using the all things to refer to um, generally speaking in that kind of a sense. To bear, that word, love bears all things, it it has two meanings. It can mean to bear up under something, that is to endure, or it can mean to protect by covering. If it means the first, and I found most commentators prefer the first meaning, then it seems to me that he's repeating himself at the end of the verse when he says, love endures all things. Um, Maybe that's true, he's mentioning it twice, but I would prefer the second meaning, which means that love protects by covering. And the idea is a loving husband doesn't broadcast his wife's faults. You know, you're at a party and uh, he's laughing about some fault that his wife has in front of everyone. No, that's not love. Love covers. Love protects by covering. Um, And uh, so... It's, it's that kind of thing of not putting someone down with jokes or sarcasm, defending someone's character as much as you can within the limits of truth, but don't deliberately expose someone just as you wouldn't want your weaknesses or sins exposed. Love protects by covering. Then the 11th thing is selfless love believes all things. I like the NIV translation, love always trusts. Now, that doesn't mean love is gullible, um, but rather it means love is not suspicious. 
I've seen suspicious husbands. They don't trust their wives. They challenge their motives. They, um, you, you can't build a relationship that way. Love has to be built on mutual trust, a relationship. Now, if trust has been violated because of some serious sin, then it has to be rebuilt a step at a time. It can't be, oh, I, I automatically trust you even though you did this that destroyed trust. No, trust is built. But trust doesn't assume guilty until proven innocent. It's the other. It's I, I believe in her. I believe that she is a person of integrity. Um, a loving husband doesn't grill his wife or cross-examine her. I had a husband once in another church, and he would keep track of the mileage on the odometer, and if his wife drove to Safeway and back, and there was an extra half mile on there. Boy, he grilled her. Where else did you go? Who did you see? You know, well, sad to say that marriage no longer exists. He didn't trust her. He was just always suspicious of her. And uh, love, Paul says, believes the best. It, it believes all things. The twelfth mark is that selfless love hopes all things. In other words, it's not pessimistic you don't expect the person to fail. Yeah, I figured you'd mess up. That's the way you always are. That's not love. Love believes the best. It hopes. It's got this optimism that says, I, I think you can do it because I know you have the Lord and the Lord in you is able. And uh, you don't necessarily close your eyes to problems or reality, but you count on God's promise. God said he will work all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And uh, you know that he is going to work his will in and through your mate. And so to hope all things for your mate means, number one, you're praying for her or him. You're praying that God will do a work in them. And Ephesians 3.20 is a good verse to claim. It says that God is able to do far more abundantly than beyond all that we ask or think. And so love hopes all things. It's got that godly optimism. And then the final characteristic, selfless love endures all things. And that word endures is a military word, meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy. Uh, it has the idea of holding up under trial, of persevering in spite of difficulties. That implies that Christian relationships are going to have problems, doesn't it? You don't need to endure if there's not a problem. Uh, you don't need to persevere if it's not under uh, attack or relationship. So Christian relationships, even in marriage, are going to have tests. They're going to have problems. Love doesn't bail out. Uh, a loving husband never says, you know, I'm through I'm out of here. You know, I've had it. Forget it. That kind of talk. That's not loving talk. You trust in God. You're committed to the relationship. And you believe you can work it through with God's grace and strength. There's just this epidemic among Christians of bailing out of difficult situations. I see it here all the time. Somebody has a problem in the church. I'm out of here. They usually don't tell me. I just figure, where's so-and-so? Oh, they had a conflict with someone else. Really? Why didn't they try to work it through? 
They just don't. We avoid that and go down the road to another church. Uh, Same thing in marriages. I see so often couples have a disagreement. They have problems. They don't deal with it. They bail out. Uh, That's not love. Now, some will say, well, aren't there grounds for divorce, adultery, and so on? And I'm going to give a message on divorce and remarriage eventually here. But, um, yes, technically adultery is grounds for divorce. But here's what I've observed. Often by the time it gets to that point, the relationship has been so shredded through unloving behavior and sin that when adultery happens, the person who sinned against says, ah, an escape hatch, I'm out of here, rather than working it through. Now, I'm not minimizing the sin of of adultery. It's horrible. It destroys marriages. It destroys trust. It creates problems that are very difficult to work through. But I am saying this. I think God's best is always to forgive and restore. That's a testimony that you can bear to the world. Yes, our marriage was in shambles, but God broke in, and here's our story. Can we share it? And then you've got a testimony. Um, And God is our example. In the Old Testament, his people were often compared to an adulterous mate. And God put up with them and put up with them and forgave them and restored them over and over. And I think that's the best. Love endures all things. So I've tried to paint you a picture here today of of what a loving husband, but also wife, parent, child, looks like in action. He's selfless. He's wholly devoted to uh, building up his mate. You say, well, wow, how can anybody love like that? Well, answer, we can't. Only God is love. But if you go back through 1 Corinthians 13 and put Christ in place of love, I think you have a description of Jesus. Jesus is patient. He's kind. He's not jealous. He doesn't brag. He's not arrogant. He doesn't act unbecomingly. He doesn't seek his own. He's not provoked. He doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. He doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And so if we want to be Christ-like, first of all, you have to have Christ. This isn't moralism. In other words, you can't just put these qualities on your refrigerator and make a self-improvement project to begin to practice them. You have to have the new birth. You have to come as a sinner to the cross And acknowledge, God, I have sinned against you, and I cannot please you in myself. And I trust in what Jesus did on my behalf. He died in my place. And I trust that as the forgiveness of all my sin. Come into my life. Give me eternal life. Make me your child. And when God does the new birth, it says that, Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And you begin then to have His Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And as you walk in the Spirit, in Galatians 5, the very first fruit of the Spirit is love. Including the third fruit is 
uh, our fourth fruit is patience, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Many of these qualities are the fruit of the Spirit. And yeah, it's a lifelong project, but it begins when you come to the cross, you trust in Christ, and then you begin a daily walk in the Spirit. A humorist named Sam Levinson says, Love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for years that it becomes a miracle. But it's not really a miracle, except the miracle of the new birth. Uh, It's the result of walking with God daily, of judging your own sin, your own selfishness, and daily thinking, how can I practice love toward my wife, toward my husband, toward my children, toward my parents, whatever your situation. just want to conclude by giving you a couple of ways you can grow in love. First, and I think this is paramount, spend time every day in God's Word and prayer. Without that, your mind is going to be shaped by the world. It is the Word of God that cleanses our minds of wrong thoughts, confronts us with our selfishness and sin. So start there. Just daily have a Bible program where you're reading the Word, studying the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word. That's crucial. Then, secondly, make love your deliberate aim. It's the main thing we should aim at. Paul goes on in chapter 14, verse 1, says, pursue love. Then a third thing is extend to your wife the same grace that you have received from God. You know, have you been forgiven much? Yeah. Okay. Extend that to your wife, your kids. Is God gracious with you, the sinner? Thank God he is. I'd be off this planet just incinerated if he weren't. All right. Extend that same grace to your your family, to those you're seeking to love. I love it there in Exodus 34 when Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says that he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding. I love that word. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so a godly husband should reflect those qualities to his wife, to his children, and Christian families one to another. There's an old legend. I think I've shared this story with you before. But, you know, the Apostle John was known as the Apostle of Love. And there's hope there because when he began, Jesus called him a son of thunder because he wanted to call down fire and brimstone on people. But he became the Apostle of Love. And he lived to be an old man up into his 90s. And The legend is that in his old age, he would have to be carried into the service. They didn't have wheelchairs back then. And sat down, and at the end of the service, he would always motion for attention, and they would go over and help him to his feet. And he would get to his feet, and he would say the same thing every time. Little children love one another. That was his message every week. Well, after a while, they got a little weary of this, you know. Oh, here he goes again. And so finally, somebody asked him, you know, well, why do you say the same thing over and over, John? And he replied, because it is the commandment of the Lord, and the observation of it alone is sufficient. Love one another. So practicing selfless love 
is first and foremost the command for every Christian husband. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, you know how short I fall, we all fall, of loving as Christ loved. I ask if any are here without Jesus as Savior and Lord, you would convict them of their sin and show them that they cannot love as they should without Christ indwelling their heart through faith. That they would turn from their sin and embrace Christ as their only hope of eternal life and forgiveness of all their sin. I pray for our homes. I know there are Christian homes. I know there are homes of pastors in America where instead of love, there's strife, angry words, blaming, put-downs, competition, and it's grievous. And Lord, I pray you would convict us all that we might in humility clothe ourselves with Christ and that his selfless love would mark our every day as we consider the other person more important than ourselves. And that this church would be marked by Christ-like love, that those who come into our midst would sense it immediately, that our Savior would be glorified through us, we ask in His name. Amen.